100 years ago, six men competed for an office job. What makes that so special? Well, each of them had been, or were destined to be, presidents of the United States. We'll head to the FDR Presidential Library and Museum in Hyde Park, New York, where we'll meet the candidates next. They seen the Republican National Convention in Chicago. Inside, the convention delegates were in a deadlock. Then they nominated the darkest of dark horse candidates. His was an unfamiliar face to many as he took his bows and made his acceptance speech. His name, Warren Gamaliel Harding. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. Now number one in podcasting, thanks to loyal listeners like you. In this episode, our time machine travels back to the end of the Great War and the dawn of Prohibition. Yep, the Jazz Age is picking a president, with flappers in all 48 states casting ballots for the first time as a half dozen once and future presidents compete for victory, returning to share his historical wisdom, anecdotes, and humor is David Petruja, who brings us 1920, the year of the six presidents. We chatted with this award-winning historian previously. Those books he discussed were T.R.'s Last War, Theodore Roosevelt, the Great War, and a journey of triumph and tragedy. And Rothstein, the life, times, and murder of the criminal genius who fixed the 1919 World Series. You can find those interviews in our archives at historyauthor.com or wherever you're listening now. David Petrusha has written or edited a stack of best-selling award-winning books, including those on other pivotal presidential election years, 1932, 1948, and 1960. He's appeared everywhere from C-SPAN and the History Channel to ESPN and Fox Sports Channel. David has even been featured on AMC's Making of the Mob, New York. It's easy to see why he's been called one of the greatest political historians of all time. Follow him at dpetruja on Twitter and davidpetruja.com. That last name is spelled P-I-E-T-R-U-S-Z-A. You can also visit fdrlibrary.org or follow them on Twitter at fdrlibrary. Okay, now that we've registered to vote, Let's join David Petruja and meet the candidates in 1920, the year of the six presidents. Three weeks later, the Democratic Convention met in San Francisco with much old-fashioned whoop-de-doo. Illness had taken President Woodrow Wilson out of the running. The race was wide open. Parades announced the Democratic Party's choice. For president, Ohio's Governor James M. Cox. For vice president, America's wartime assistant secretary of Navy, 38-year-old Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I'm joined by David Petrusha at the Franklin D. Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum in Hyde Park, New York, on the eastern bank of the Hudson River. 
where they've been kind enough to let us sit down and record a chat about his book, 1920, The Year of the Six Presidents. Thank you for making the time to meet up with me and to talk to the History Author Show in this virtual smoke-filled room we've got going. Great to be with you again. When I read that first line of 1920, it really grabbed me. And then, as opening lines do, it led me to the first paragraph and to the first section and the second section. And it was just so well written, something that grabbed me, and it wasn't what you might expect from a history book. And in fact, I called my wife in and I said, I have to read this to you. This is why this guy is one of the great historians that we have to chronicle these things. Talk about that vivid scene that you paint that so clobbered me and explain where that came in your research process that you decided, yes, this is the opening scene to grab people. Well, it didn't start out that way. <laughs> I don't remember what I junked, but it wasn't the first pass. And I think that's a lesson. Well, what happened was, in my, in my previous book, in my penultimate book, but before that, let's back it up. I, I started out with something completely pedestrian. That was a biography of Kennesaw Mountain Landis, which won the best baseball book of the year, despite a pedestrian first sentence. And then the book after that was of Arnold Rothstein. And by that time, the light had gone on. And I started that book with A.R., Arnold Rothstein, bet he was going to die. And I realized you had to come in and you had to get people's attention. And what that meant was Arnold Rothstein had bought some more life insurance on himself. <laughs> but since he was going to be shot 24 hours after that, that really was a pretty good bet on his part. And so what do you start with in 1920? And the first president is the guy who's in office, maybe not chronologically of the six we have, but Woodrow Wilson, and he's not having a good year. And he didn't have a good year before that. He had a big stroke. He had a couple of strokes, and the biggest one was in the White House when he had returned from uh, a big Western swing to sell his great obsession, the League of Nations, and he gets sick right on the podium in Pueblo, Colorado. has to be led off because he's just sort of babbling. This is not good for President of the United States or for the United States of America. They bring him back, and he doesn't get any better. Gets up in the middle of the night and goes to the bathroom, has the big stroke, falls, hits his head on the sink, and the sentence is, the President of the United States lay bleeding on the bathroom floor. And you follow that up with his obsession, I guess you'd say, or, or fascination with the number 13. And that was something that, wow, I think of you researching it saying that was your wow moment. Hey, not only is he lying there, he has these strokes, he keeps that all hidden from the American people, anything but his close circle. Here he's obsessed with 13, and this is 13 months before the 1920 Right, election. exactly 13 months. And his he had, may have changed his name to from Thomas Woodrow Wilson to have something to Woodrow Wilson which had 13 letters and he would leave for France and come back on the 13th day of the month and there would be th it would be 13 miles from you know, the governor's mansion when he would do something or there would be 13 elements of the inauguration par parade 
just 13, 13, 13, and on purpose. So not only are you dealing with a very physically sick president of the United States at that point, uh, he's got a little weirdness going on, too. A lot of weirdness. <laughs> you, yes. You get that out of 1920, the year of the six presidents. I think as strange as Harding is, at least it's all combined to his bedroom or the bedrooms of any of his mistresses, pretty much. Or... Otherwise, he's pretty <laughs> normal. Yeah, return to normalcy, as we'll get into, right? He was, he was pretty normal. But Wilson was a strange guy. And that stroke, when you think of a president having a stroke and he's driving around and you describe that about how he thinks Everyone's going too fast, even when they're not, if they pass him and he wants to pull him over and he's, he just really is a, an enfeebled guy and he's running for a third term or thinking about running for a third term. He really term. is thinking about it. That's one of the questions I think people would have because the premise or the subtitle, the year of the six presidents. No, there aren't six presidents in one year like there would be with, say, Garfield and Hayes and Arthur or anything like that. What there is is six people in play in that election, and the first one is Theodore Roosevelt, who we will get to, but is Woodrow Wilson running? He's a sick man. He's not running. Why is he in this thing? He shouldn't be in the book any more than William Howard Taft is, but in fact, he refuses to get out of the way for any of the Democratic potential nominees, including his son-in-law, the former Secretary William Gibbs McAdoo. And he sends his secretary of state at the time of the Democratic convention in San Francisco, Bainbridge Colby, to go and stampede the convention in his behalf. Now, when Colby gets there and reveals his mission to his fellow cabinet members, they go, what are you thinking? (laughs) What is Wilson thinking? And Colby says he came back feeling like he was a criminal and the whole thing collapses. And when Wilson gets the news, he's ticked off because some of these people, probably like Colby, had had sold him a bill of goods as to that the public was clamoring for a third Wilson term. It was not. But Woodrow Wilson was so delusional at that point that he didn't know that. He really is insulated. You write that he doesn't even read newspapers. And I say doesn't even because nowadays that's a big question, right? They'll ask, well, what newspapers do you read if you're running for president? And you said that he just really cared about his opinion and that was it. And even if he changed his opinion from five minutes before, you suddenly now were a You're a bad guy if you had the opinion he had five minutes before. So not, not a great guy to deal with, but Actually, you know, we we do, he has such a bad reputation now, it's easy to overlook what his assets were. He could be very good orating to a group of people and, you know, selling them a bill of goods. The intellectual, the schoolmaster in politics, the guy who was above all this Tammany Hall's bad stuff and the Republican machines and all that, he was coming in clean as a whistle and he was going to clean everything up. He's very good legislatively when he has a big majority and when he hasn't worn out his welcome. He has a, uh, in New Jersey, he's governor of New Jersey. In that first session, he gets a lot done to reform the state, which was very corrupt at that point. And then when he's president of the United States, he puts through as much of a progressive agenda as Franklin Roosevelt does in the New Deal, really and certainly much more than Theodore Roosevelt. 
But when he's working with a Republican group of legislators, he forgets that he has to negotiate. I think maybe he never knew he had to negotiate, that he could just tell people what to do. There are instances early on in the book where people are talking about he would call them in for meetings, and he wouldn't allow them to speak. He'd just orate at them and send them away and not even thank them either supporters at Princeton University or highly placed Democratic members of Congress. So, you know, what kind of guy is this? Really is something to start off with him. And then you look at the rest of the cast. And in 1920, the year of the six presidents, you meet all of them. So many names and places and dates to keep straight. I mentioned to you in an email that you need a scorecard just to keep Warren G. Harding's mistresses straight. You have to then interact them all together. If this was a screenplay, they'd probably tell you to pare it down maybe to three precedents in 1880, say, or something, or 1881, as you just alluded to. But this book, incredibly, has captured the imagination of filmmakers who, I guess, are better at keeping all that together than I would be in a film. And that's Charles Charlie Mathau, the son of screen icon Walter Mathau. So I wanted to ask about that because here's a book published in 2008, and it gets optioned. It's been through, what, eight reprints, seven or eight reprints? Nine or ten paperback and a couple hardcover, yes. So how does it compare to your expectations? Because when you write a book called 1920 and you're thinking, well, when it comes, it's sort of like Prince, and he writes 1999 and whatever it was, 84, and uh, here it comes. You know, you're waiting for the millennium to come so you can play the song over and over. And how did that affect you? Well, this was my, in terms of expectations, I'm not sure what I had, although the preceding book, Rothstein, had done fairly well. So it wasn't like I was coming off some bomb or anything. I seemed to be, but I had not written anything which was not connected to sports at that point. I had been doing sports and baseball publishing, editor of Total Sports Publishing, co-editor of the official encyclopedia of Major League Baseball. And so the two preceding books had been a bio of the first commissioner of baseball, a fellow who fixed up the mess from the 1919 World Series, and then a bio of Arnold Rothstein, the gangster, who fixed the World Series. So I was coming to something new, but I was coming back, too, because this is what I had been trained to do. I had been trained with a BA and an MA in history, and I've been studying American history and particularly the presidents ever since I was a little kid. But in terms of expectations, I wasn't even sure what expectations should be for an author. I mean, you know who the big books are, but you don't know who, you know, the other books are, you know, that things are going to keep selling forever. And this thing has pretty much kept selling forever. And then when about a year ago, Charlie Mathau contacted us and said, you know, are the, are the rights available? It's like, yes, they are. And what he wants to do is to do a six-part uh, television miniseries. And he's done a couple of drafts for that on the screenplays. Interesting to see how they evolve. And they really do. I, I think they say movies are not made, they're remade. And books should be re-edited, and I do a lot of editing with mine. But it's very heartening to see this may be, 
the book I'm remembered for. Well, it would be a great one, certainly, because I enjoy the period. So it may sound for me, okay, well, this guy likes the early 20th century and would find it interesting. But even if you didn't, it's a book that grabs you. How can you not be riveted by them, especially when at every turn it's not what you might expect? For instance, the six candidates here in 1920, the year of the six presidents, they seem to either really, really want the job, like you have Woodrow Wilson lying there in his sickbed, not able to speak, not able to move much. You know, you have T.R. who passes away by the time this starts, but he's still there in, on his sickbed, can't really move much. He's been in a wheelchair also, as I guess Wilson has after the stroke, right? Uh, T.R. is told that if he survives, if he gets better, he may spend the rest of his life in a uh, wheelchair. Imagine a Roosevelt being in the White House in a wheelchair. Incomprehensible. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, so T.R. might have been been the first one if he had not, not passed away. And he was a young man. Yeah, 60, He was right? 60, just yeah. barely. And these guys all either, as I said, they those guys, those two, okay, they, they want it and it's not even uh, rational necessarily. And then you have the other guys who are either lukewarm or outright reluctant. You have Warren G. Harding who says, am I a big enough man for the race? And spoiler alert, he's the ultimate winner of this thing. The guy who seems to want at least, he's described as everything from the best of the second Raiders to H.L. Mencken who calls him of the intellectual grade of an aging cockroach, which doesn't, <laughs> doesn't sound so great. But those sex scandals aside, he turns out to be sort of like vanilla ice cream. It's nobody's first choice when you go to Baskin and Robbins, but hey, in a pinch, everyone can agree on it. We'll have the vanilla, fine, two scoops, and we'll move on. And that's how he positions himself. But throughout the race here in 1920, you're right, he's thinking of dropping out. His wife at one point grabs the phone, uh, the Duchess, as they called her. We're here in Duchess County. So his wife grabs the phone and says, no, no, he is not dropping out. So you write that he's nobody's first choice and, quote, Harding may have been reading the nation's pulse, but the nation was not aware he had any. There's no shortage of reasons that you read this book and say, this guy never should have been the nominee, much less the winner with all of this star power. Did anyone expect him to triumph in 1919 early on when he first announces? Why, why, yes. <laughs> Madam Marsha did. Oh, right. <laughs> right? Yeah, the psychic. <laughs> right. So Florence Harding, Warren's wife, the Duchess, goes to a fortune teller in Washington, D.C., a very famous one named Madam Marsha. She goes with a couple of other uh, senators' wives. And they ask, will one of our husbands be president of the United States in 1920? And Madame Marcia looks at Florence and says, yours, yours will be president. Now, Madame Marcia had predicted the same thing for Woodrow Wilson's second wife. Huh. So she's got a pretty good track record. And then she goes on and tells Florence, Madame Marcia does, but I foresee... Only tragedy. He will die in office, perhaps poison. <gasps> <laughs> so tune in next week, kiddies. <laughs> and something else with that, that's uh, long been rumored, right? So it's, it's great. It's, it's rumored. And, and uh, one of the early diagnoses was food poisoning, actually, which was not right. But yeah, yeah. because he, well, he had quite the gut on him, really, that, which explains why he had the heart attack. 
And, uh, you know, he was not in good health, even assuming the presidency. And Wilson was in worse health. He had had strokes as far back as the 1890s. And in 1907, he's blind in, in one eye, just like Theodore Roosevelt was. Wilson maintains a very weak, low work schedule as president of the United States, works like half a day, spends a lot of time golfing, going to the theaters, the vaudeville houses, doesn't work at all on Sunday. And that's one of the reasons why he falls apart on that tour in 1919 to sell the League of Nations, because he hasn't worked so hard in a long time, maybe ever. Yeah, well, you'd think running Princeton, okay, mostly it was what you said, right? It seems like the job would mostly be just going, telling people what to do, and then moving on with your day. Yeah. <laughs> Not like he's out there like TR saying, I'm going to go climb the Matterhorn or something or uh, horseback ride or all of these things. He did boxing and those scrambles they would have at Sagamore Hill, and he was always really active. I mean, it doesn't save him, but he seems to have worn his body down as he says. Well, he wears it down from the Amazon when he goes and explores the Amazon, which is one of the worst ideas any president has ever had or (laughs) ex-president, gets malaria and all sorts of jungle fever and really never recovers from that fully. It's in his body the whole rest of his life. Yeah, it gets the malaria, and he also is, as you said, blind in one eye. That's from boxing. And deaf in one ear from, again, from the Amazon. He wanted that cleared out when he was in the hospital in February 1918, and they clear the ear canal out and wreck it in the process, which leaves him with no sense of equilibrium in that ear. And he has to literally learn how to walk again in 1918. If you take a look at the picture on the cover of another of my books, TR's Last War, the typical TR speaking pose is he's standing up and he's got his palm out one hand and he's banging the hell out of it with his fist. And in this picture, which is in September 1918, he's hanging on to the podium with one hand and to a stanchion for dear life with the other. This is not the TR. This is a little forensic uh, (laughs) diagnosis uh, just from that picture. Every picture tells a story. And you talk about equilibrium and balance, and I mentioned it being a horseman. My favorite picture of him is the one, he's on horseback, right? He's sitting ramrod straight, looking at the camera, jumping over a fence. Yes. That takes balance, right? And especially his, his vision wasn't so great when he had two eyes working. Yeah. So to be robbed of that and still be there. I mean, he has a note, doesn't he, by the side of his bed when he when he passes away about him about him running in 1920. He Yeah, he, want, he wants to see uh, Will Hayes, who is going to be the czar of motion pictures in the 1920s and 30s and his Republican national chairman about, you know, uh, reuniting the party down in Washington. And he'd been meeting with Henry Cabot Lodge to oppose the League of Nations. But he's kind of has mixed emotions about running again. Aside from his health, losing his son in the war, Quentin, is, you know, it, it would hurt anyone. And particularly when he had argued so vociferously for getting into that war and being manly and all that. And his youngest son uh, dies in that war very, very quickly when he goes into combat. And two other sons are very badly wounded. Yeah, well, was it Archie 100%, huh? 100% 100% disabled disabled in World War I, and then he goes out and fights in the Pacific in World War II and gets wounded again 
and is the only American rated 100% disabled in two different world wars. And it was uh, Edith Roosevelt says something very nice about losing her son. Well, she says for one thing that she thinks it may hit TR more than her. Yeah. But she says you can't raise boys to be eagles and expect them to be sparrows. No. And since her son died in that biplane, you know, gets shot through, at least mercifully dies instantly, shot through the head, at least he they can take some comfort in, as TR says, he got to the front. He was able to show what he had in him before it was his time. But it does really devastate him, needless to say. But he lingers for a while, and here you go. That's their logical candidate. <laughs> he's he's in the hospital for two or three months of the last year of his life. In the hospital, Roosevelt Hospital on uh, Manhattan's west side. The second president here in 1920, the year of the six presidents, is Harding's vice president, the governor of Massachusetts, Calvin Coolidge. You write, quote, What Warren Harding was, Calvin Coolidge was not. What Warren Harding was not, Calvin Coolidge was. And there's some more of that really nice clipped sentences that I like in your writing that really feels like you're writing to me. It feels like novelization or like a jingle, which I mean as a high compliment. Just <laughs> I go back and forth. These books will often be an 18-month process, and the first six months are research, which is getting off the tiger of putting everything down so you don't lose it is kind of exhausting. And then I only spend six months writing, and then the next six months are editing. And part of that is to make those sentences sing. I need to do something to give the reader something more than just facts and all those facts that you hated when you were in history class in high school. How does that odd couple, Coolidge and Harding, two guys who don't seem to have anything in common, how do they end up as running mates? Well, <laughs> Coolidge had a sort of favorite son candidacy, which he was always throwing cold water on, because it's like, if I'm any good, I'll just sort of get the job anyway. And he rose from... Alderman, mayor, state representative, state senator, president of the state senate, lieutenant governor, governor, then lieutenant governor, or vice president, president. So holding as many offices as any American ever. So he's not shy about rising in politics, but he's shy in advertising that he wants the job or he's a, is even available for it. And his campaign doesn't go very far because he's not aiding it in any way. But Harding's vice presidential nominee, the boys in the back room, say, Warren, what do you think of Senator Irvine Lenrude of Wisconsin? It's like, fine. <laughs> you know, it's like, fine, okay, whatever <laughs> you guys want. <laughs> you know, actually, they had actually, Harding and Lenrude had ridden together to a speaking engagement to a big pro-tariff organization in Boston once. And at that conference, Warren Harding gave his normalcy speech, okay? They knew each other. I think he had no objection to him. And the chairman of the convention recognizes a delegate from Oregon who stands up on a chair, and they think he is going to provide a seconding address or vote for Irvine Ledroot. And he said, I am here... We had been pledged originally for Henry Cabot Lodge for vice president. They had a primary for vice president. But I would like to nominate a man, another great man, Calvin Coolidge from Massachusetts, the great governor, Calvin Coolidge. And the place goes wild. It just stampedes. 
unbossed, unbought convention, and Coolidge is nominated in a rush. What is interesting about their relationship is that maybe because both men had been lieutenant governors, and maybe most of all because Harding had been a lieutenant governor and knew what a crummy job being a lieutenant governor or a, a vice president could be, and says to Calvin and to the nation that when Harding is in office, Calvin Coolidge will be the first vice president to sit in on cabinet meetings. This is one reason why Vice President Thomas Marshall, Wilson's vice president, never did anything to take power when Wilson is ill, aside from a normal just sort of pussyfooting about the whole thing and being afraid of his own shadow on this issue. (laughs) But also, he'd never been in a cabinet meeting. And when you think about it, the vice president is really part of the legislative branch. His only job is preside over the Senate, not to do anything else. Yeah. It's only <laughs> since Calvin Coolidge that things have gotten exciting in that <laughs> office. Take the president's pulse and call once a day and ask the Senate if they have any ties for me to break. And other than that, they used to speak. John Adams was in there as vice president, and he starts lecturing them and speechifying in a a Wilsonian way, I guess you might say, based on our topic. And the senators pass a rule that the vice president can't say anything. Probably wise. (laughs) There goes one one of the small things they had to do. In fact, as vice president for McKinley, one of our other six presidents here in the well, that is T.R. is one of our other six presidents in the year of the six presidents. He thinks about going back to law school as vice president because he can't stand the inaction of just sitting around and, and waiting for anything to happen to McKinley. He seems OK. And and then, of course, he gets shot and T.R. is thrust into the presidency. But it was pretty boring. Yeah. Then that's why that's why they put T.R. there. They wanted him to be boring. They didn't want him <laughs> anymore as governor of New York, the Republican bosses of that state. Get out. (laughs) (laughs) Two more guys who really don't want to seek the presidency in that year are Democrats, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And here we are at his library and museum. We couldn't wait too long to mention him. But the other Democrat is Herbert Hoover. And yes, they're both Democrats at this period. For those of us who've grown up seeing Hoover's picture on the wall of sitcoms and movies, if you watch uh, for instance, It's a Wonderful Life, there's Hoover on the wall, and he's there over Ed Brown's bed, and Chico and the Man as late as the 70s, and hey, he's in the lyrics of the All in the Family song, right? And so these are Democrats at the time. Hoover's a Democrat at the time, which is something that he becomes this symbol of supposed Republican indifference. And FDR, even more shocking here in 1920, the year of the six presidents, he's, he calls him up, so to speak, in 1920 and says, Hey, Herb, uh, what do you think of us running together on the same ticket, right? And Hoover, in fact, wins the Democratic New Hampshire and Michigan primaries in 1920. It's amazing. I can't think of anyone else who's won a a presidential primary in, in a state as key as New Hampshire in two different years with two different parties. So how far is that idea just talk? How does that set Hoover up also for 1932? There's a bunch of guys that year. Well, a bunch, two, maybe more who want the presidency but aren't about to do anything to get it. Hoover, in particular, who really doesn't have a lot of political skills, never does, never will, he had been born a Republican, had donated money to TR's progressive campaign, progressive party campaign in 1912, and was working for Woodrow Wilson, which is why people thought, well, I guess he's a Democrat. 
but he really wasn't a Democrat. And he also, he did have maybe not great political skills, but he could read the newspapers and see 1920 was not going to be a Democratic year. The public was turning on eight years of, of Wilsonism. And so maybe you don't want to be the nominee of that party. And so eventually he does run in the Republican Party in California, which is a bad move because, well, the Republican Party primary is very split that year on the League of Nations. You've got some people like Hiram Johnson of California, the governor, the senator, who are irreconcilables, William E. Bora. They don't want any part of the League of Nations at all. No matter how many conditions you put into the treaty to protect us, we don't want it. They say it's spinach and the hell with it, as the old saying <laughs> went. And the reservationists who say, okay, if you do this and we don't have to go to war over Northern Ireland or Trieste or whatever, and we can you know, keep our constitutional safeguards, the Senate will declare war, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera fine, we can go in to this debating society. And then the people say no, like Wilson eventually will say no, it's my way or the highway. Yeah, as usual. As usual. So Hoover is for the League of Nations. Taft is for the League of Nations. And you've got people in the middle, guess like who? Warren Harding, because he's the man in the middle often, (laughs) which is not the worst position to be in. Although by the end of that campaign, he is going to come out four square against the League of Nations. Whether he's totally calculated it right or it's become overwhelming, I'm not sure. The, The nation has just had enough of this talk and let's not do this. It's a testament to his skills that the Republican Party, look, the Republican Party had really not put itself together back in 1916 from the split in 1912. And then you have this new issue, which is splitting the party, which is the League of Nations, where it's all over the lot. And Harding, once he gets the nomination, keeps everyone on board. And that's not easy. You know, it's sort of like being, oh, Mitch McConnell or someone. Keeping everyone on board is not easy. And Harding has the skill to do it. That's something you wrote there, speaking about Hoover, that you said he... Well, they call him the great humanitarian, right? The great engineer. And you write, he was a great humanitarian, but not a great human. Not saying morally in things, but he wasn't that backslapping or much less backstabbing. That's a lot of uh, politics. No, he just sort of be, you know. Uh, um, the, when he is approached by the nephew of Supreme Court Justice Brandeis, at the behest of Franklin Roosevelt, or actually it was, it's this nephew's idea, and Roosevelt signs on to it. Hey, Herb, can we do a Herbert Hoover Franklin D. Roosevelt ticket? You be the president, and Frank will be the vice president. You know, Hoover is just playing with his pencil and, like, you know, looking down and <laughs> mumbling, and I don't know, I, I don't know if I should do this or would be unseemly, and Brandeis's nephew just pounds his fist on the table and says, look, if you want to be president, you know, you've got to get your your hands dirty on this. You've got to make some moves. And Hoover is not about to do that. He's not about to move forward until the field is completely cleared for him in 1928. He's one of those guys that's a 
technocratic that we get every now and he then really is. in presidential politics where, well, this person can, can solve it because they're very workmanlike. And he had saved Europe from that famine. We are coming out of the Great War here, the terrible flu pandemic that comes after. People are suffering from that. They're wanting somebody maybe who's going to come and not repeat certainly Wilson's abuses of civil rights and trampling on civil liberties. And maybe sometimes we cry out for a technocrat, but then you realize six months, a year in, oh, I, I want the guy who's going to hug me. And, oh, he remembered my name. And Warren Harding would remember your name. That guy was Harding might exciting. have been better in handling the Great Depression because he'd be able to exude some sort of warmth or eloquence, which Hoover could not. You know, in 1933, when Franklin Roosevelt comes in and he closes down all the banks because they're about you know, ready to collapse. He says, let's have a bank holiday. And Hoover had the same idea and was going to call it a moratorium, which is more fun. <laughs> there you go. Okay, a holiday. Who yeah. wouldn't love to have a holiday <laughs> when you can't get your money out of the banks? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it turns on little things like that, which is great. And it's one of the reasons that Hoover is not the front runner. People want someone, maybe they wanted that man on a horse, General Leonard Wood, who's a war hero, wins the Congressional Medal of Honor, I believe. Yeah. Right? So he's the He GOP was uh, in runner. the in the Southwest chasing after Cochise or one of Pacho those Villa, fellows. One yeah. Of those guys. No, no, it was Apaches, yeah. Uh, Indian Wars. And then he was TR's boss right, in the Spanish American yeah. War with the Rough Riders and was sort of the embodiment of Imperial America because he had served in overseeing our empire in Cuba and in the Philippines after that. And the big guy for preparedness, the number two guy for preparedness leading up to World War I behind his pal Theodore Roosevelt. You're enjoying my conversation with David Petrusha about a single election that would produce a combined 40 years or 10 presidential terms, if you slice it up that way, of service. We're at the FDR Presidential Library and Museum, digging into his book, 1920, The Year of the Six Presidents. You can visit Hyde Park to explore the legacy of America's 32nd chief executive in person if you can, or check it out online at fdrlibrary.org. As for our guest, you can follow him at dpetruja on Twitter or davidpetruja.com. And that last name is spelled P-I-E-T-R-U-S-Z-A. Presidential scholar Richard Norton Smith writes, quote, David Petrusha has a gift for making the past both real and dramatically gripping. And in 1920, he has an extraordinary cast of characters with which to work his magic. One hell of a historical dinner party. An unforgettable group portrait of America on the brink of modernity. Now, speaking of dinner parties, the wives are invited to this one as never before, as women exercise universal suffrage for the first time in the 1920 election. One question is, who will succeed Edith Wilson as first lady in that election, although she's not on the ballot? That question prompted me to ask for a quick lightning round comparison of the complicated, devoted, and just-for-show marriages in 1920. Who do you think would have been best in the role of first lady? Well, actually, Florence Harding was fairly popular in her time when she wasn't sick. She was sick a lot with kidney disease. Everyone had kidney yeah, Bright's disease, disease, Bright's right disease, everybody. Yeah. And I think that's what 
Wilson's first wife die, though, as well. Chester Arthur. Chester Arthur died of it. Yeah. So everybody's dying of, of that back then. But she's actually kind of an activist. She flies in an airplane back then. And she's kind of spunky. Her backstory is like soap opera, where she was the, she was the daughter of the richest man in town. But she fell in love with a cad. She became pregnant. Were they even married? She returns at Christmas time to her father to beg to be taken in. He says, no, no, daughter of mine. I shall take in your son, but not you. You have disgraced the family. And she has to support herself as a single mom, earning a living as a piano teacher in small town Marion, Ohio. And in small towns, people can be small townish. But she makes a living and she sets her eye on Warren Harding, this cool bachelor guy. <laughs> they hit it off in some fashion and they're they're real they're a political partnership, which is not unique in the annals of the White House. Uh, we can mention some people recently who we're not sure how happy their marriage is, but they're political partners. And also, not so recently, where after the, we're jumping ahead, but after Franklin Roosevelt's infidelities of 1917, where Franklin and Eleanor marriage is really kind of a partnership and less of a marriage, a lot less of a marriage. It's something to read. All of these guys also are having wives that are around, because that's not always the case either in history. I mean, Wilson obviously gets a, a new one pretty fast, but, he, right. but still, they all... And then, as I said, with Harding, you have to keep track. I guess uh, Anna Grace Coolidge is probably the one that's quietest in the book. She's the quietest. I think she's the first to be college-educated, but she certainly is quieter on public policy than even Calvin is. Lou Hoover was also college-educated. Eleanor is kind of interesting that she was illiterate until she was 9 or 10. Huh. Yeah, they pack her off to relatives because her father and then her mother died, and she goes to live with some relatives, and they think she's an idiot because it's like she's not functioning. with. And then they realize she can't read. She's never learned to read. And then they pack her off to private school and even in Europe. She's a quick learner. She catches up very quickly in that regard. Wilson's wife was a jeweler's widow, second wife, and ends up being the acting president of the United States, as they say, when he had the stroke, the first female president. So it's a mixed bag of presidents, and it's a really mixed bag of wives. The most glamorous of them is Grace Coolidge. She's a, a bit of a, a looker and a fashion plate, and Calvin would take great pleasure in window shopping and in Washington and, and seeing stuff and, and sending the stuff home. He'd, he wouldn't spend money on much, either his or the country's, but he would on his wife's wardrobe. He takes a real role in her first lady portrait, too, as yes. we discussed with Featheress Foster. And he is the white dog, and he, he wants her to wear the white dress, I believe, because he thinks it'll look better. And the portrait painter is saying, no, with the white dog, see the red dress. That looks really good, Mr. President. And Coolidge says, well, dye the dog. Right, tie the dog red. <laughs> that, that always cracks me up. The 1920 Democratic nominee is not one of the half dozen in 1920, the year of six presidents, just like that earlier front runner we mentioned, General Wood, is not. So we move on then to FDR, and FDR is a young man at that point, 
But he eventually goes on. He learns from this campaign. I mean, if you're going to go on to become a president, uh, there's probably a pretty good training ground. What does he learn in 1920 that sets him up for 32? Well, he makes some rookie mistakes in 20. He shoots his mouth off about what he's been doing in the Caribbean, where we had some client states in Haiti and um, Nicaragua. Because the issue with the League of Nations, one of them is Americans, real Americans, are saying, you know, we're going to have one vote in this League of Nations. And the United Kingdom, the King of England, is going to have six with all the Commonwealth nations, Canada, South Africa, Australia, etc. Roosevelt starts bragging, well, you know, we're going to control all the votes of these little pipsqueak Latin American nations, <laughs> which is not, you know, not exactly diplomatic. Yeah. You know, you don't want you don't want the children hearing this conversation, okay? <laughs> and you know, um, you know, I wrote the Constitution for Haiti, and it's like, no, you didn't. <laughs> but and then he denies he said any of this. He gets caught lying, so not quite there yet. He had also been a kind of a backstabbing guy with his old boss at the Secretary of Navy and, and could have been fired on a few occasions. So he's not quite learned the co- political ropes then in 1920. But going around the country on the campaign train, he, he is a very energetic campaigner. He has certain charms. He's, he is FDR, you know, after all. And, well, Eleanor will complain early in his career that some of his speeches are like way too long and pointless but you know with each telling you know your your delivery gets better and better and better but what he does is he compiles a card file of everyone he's met in that 1920 failed vice presidential campaign and he keeps in touch with all these guys he keeps in touch with them all the way through the 1932 And when he's won the presidency that year, that nephew of Louis Brandeis comes in and visits him in the executive mansion in New York State, where he was governor, winding up as governor. And Roosevelt has all those cards in front of him and said, this is how I got to be president from what you advised me to do in 1920, running as vice president. So uh, 1920 has uh, a lot of far-reaching consequences. really does ripple for a long time. One thing is prohibition is just starting then. So, And you have women voting. I mean, who, who ever thought of pitching their vote to women on a large scale before that? I guess a little bit they would have because I, they I could think vote women in could some vote in New Jersey. Yeah, well, they, they could vote in various states. but So you, you were taking a chance by saying you were opposed to it in some state, you know, uh, if you're running federally, because you might lose every state where women could vote. They might vote against you in a block, despite what their background or ideologies might be. So that helps Harding, I guess. Cause yeah, he it was helps Harding. And women tended to be more interested in the Republican ticket uh, for a couple reasons. The Democratic base were a lot of immigrants from traditional societies. And it's like, well, we didn't. We don't care. You know, we're just keeping the house. <laughs> and um, we got enough trouble without worrying about this. <laughs> and in the South, another traditional society. So the votes for women's suffrage come primarily from Republicans. In the state of Illinois is the only state where the votes are broken down 
officially, I'm not talking about exit polling. I'm talking about the state of Illinois knew what the breakdown was by sex or gender. Uh, pink ballots and yeah. blue ballots or something, yeah. I guess. And, and Harding did better. Harding did better with the women than, than with the men even. And some scattered data from voting in, in precincts around Boston where the vote went up significantly in the Republican areas. Okay, they weren't breaking it down by gender, but you know the total vote went way up in the Republican areas and not as much in the Democratic areas, which tells you that the Democratic women weren't coming out there to vote, the, the Irish or, or whoever was living there. And Prohibition also. And also the Irish were ticked off at the Democrats because of Woodrow Wilson. Yeah. I was going to say, a lot of those little countries, you said a lot of them are immigrants. A lot of them weren't, weren't so happy with his stance. Yeah, and I found a clipping just recently where FDR had been passing through my hometown on his way to Utica, New York, where he's speaking to a bunch of businessmen, and he's just excoriating the hyphenated, presumably disloyal vote of Italian-Americans. Did he have any idea how many Italians live in Utica? Apparently <laughs> not. Evidently not. And temperance would have been another issue because here comes prohibition, right? So I guess who they who they looked at as having helped pass that. And also, since Wilson was so violently, and that's the word for it, against women's suffrage, I'm sure that even though, as I said at the top of our interview, yeah, him switching he on switches a dime, to right? it, yeah. But still, I'm sure that... Uh, Ladies tend to have a long memory, and political constituents tend to have a long memory of who brought you there. So that would have definitely impacted it. There's a bunch of other things here in the book. I'll just invite people, definitely pick it up. But one is your Chapter 16 headline, Convict Number 9653. That's not one of the six presidents, but that is a candidate. This American Jean Valjean is how I described him. And I said I, I, I had to promise you that I wouldn't break into any Les Miserables tunes right. when I mentioned him. But even the also-rants here in the year of the six presidents are riveting figures. Yeah, that's Eugene V. Debs. He'd run for president a few times on the Socialist Party ticket. Woodrow Wilson uh, threw him in jail in 1917 and was determined to keep him there forever, not to pardon him after the war for violating um, the Sedition Act and, and urging people not to cooperate with the draft. And Warren Harding, for all his faults, is, I think, a genuinely kindly person. And he becomes president and pardons Eugene V. Debs, not only pardons him, but says to Debs, you know, I've heard a lot about you. Well, first off, I think you should be home for Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> but before you get to home, drop by the White House. I'd like to meet you. I mean, in some ways, you got to love Harding. Yeah, that's what politics is. You yeah. Know? I mean, it's uh, the P.O.L. part of the root of it, I mean, is people, right? So, you know, you think of all those Greek terms like hoi polloi and, you know, the common people and the glad handing. And that will get someone to vote for you if you make them feel like you're connected. And the, the naturals do that. And he seems like he was a natural for that. And it, it might have been to his detriment, might have cost him his life. Didn't want it, but he had the skills people wanted at the time. He hits on that one word you mentioned that resonates, normalcy. And that was something because he also had that self-deprecating idea, or I don't know if it was necessarily self-deprecating as it was, he recognizes limitations, which I think voters like. And, right. you know, we read a history book, you like to see that. And Coolidge will say famously, it is good for the country, for the president not to think he is a great man. And 
a biographer of Harding, Andrew Sinclair, wrote in the 60s that Harding's political skills were a bit like Eisenhower's, that you thought that either one was adult, or people did in the 50s about Eisenhower, but then he'd delegate things to people, they'd get them done, and if they, or not, but if they failed, they'd take the fall for it, and if they succeeded, him being the boss, uh, yeah, he'd get the he'd credit. In, right. That's something, and he has that, that slogan that seems to hit i mean it's just one of those speeches he's giving right and he he starts talking about it and i won't ask you to quote it directly but i can play a clip of harding let's hear it america's present need is not heroic but healing not maxim but normal not revolution but restoration not agitation but adjustment not surgery but serenity not the dramatic but the dispassionate not experiments but equipoise not submergence in internationality, but sustainment in triumphant nationality. There's a lot of alliteration in it. Yeah. It's pre-Spiro Agnew. Yeah, it's very hammering things, and anything out of there could be sucked out to be a slogan. Well, I'm noticing in this 2020 campaign, a friend of mine is pointing out that Joe Biden is saying that he wants to return us to normalcy. Yeah. But Harding's campaign has... Uh, two slogans which are resonating with people today. One is normalcy, and the other is, which we've heard now for a while and gets criticized because it's used by other people later, is America first. You can go on the Internet and hear a speech by Harding, America first. I have a confidence in our America that requires no council of foreign powers to point the way of American duties. Call it the selfishness of nationality, if you will. I think it's an inspiration to patriotic devotion, to safeguard America first, to stabilize America first, to prosper America first, to think of America first, to exalt America first, to live for and revere America first. I mean, that's been around for a long time, but Harding puts it to good use in 20 as well as normalcy. I like Harding's voice. He had that deep baritone. Yeah. McKinley was like that, if you ever hear McKinley. Yeah. And so did Wilson, Wilson actually, has right? Wilson has a Great much voice. different voice than you would expect. Yeah, you'd expect him to sound like T.R. and T.R. to sound like him. That's right. T.R. sounds like <laughs> this. I can play a T.R. clip, too. Why don't I do that? We'll get some sound. I believe that the majority of the plain people of the United States will, day in and day out, make fewer mistakes in governing themselves than any smaller class or body of men, no matter what their training, will make in trying to govern. And I guess now I have to play Wilson so he can compare and contrast. Mr. Roosevelt puts forth an admirable platform of what he would like to do for the people. But how is he going to do it? He proposes in his platform not to abolish monopolies, but to take it under the legal protection of the government and to regulate it. In other words, to take the very men into partnership who have been making it impossible to carry out these great programs by which all of us wish to help the people. I guess this is why in that quote that I read from Richard Norton Smith, he says, here's America on the brink of modernity, because here we have audio for the first time. Well, not the first time, but of a lot of these guys. The first one we have audio of is Benjamin Harrison. Yeah. So not that far before TR's term, well, we the, start hearing. The campaigns are making these phonograph records, and you'd go to the 
you know, the Republican clubhouse or something and spin, you know, Calvin <laughs> Coolidge talking Greatest about hits. law and order or have faith in Massachusetts or something. I want the people of America to be able to work less for the government and more for themselves. I want them to have the rewards of their own industry. This is the chief meaning of freedom. Until we can reestablish a condition under which the earnings of the people can be kept by the people, we are bound to suffer a very severe and distinct curtailment of our liberty. That's Calvin Coolidge as president after Warren G. Harding has passed away. Do you think that without a return to normalcy, without hitting on that idea that Harding still wins, it's a Republican year? It's almost impossible for a Republican to lose that yeah. year. I mean, he <laughs> yeah. gets 62% of the vote. He's Amazing. He exceeds the popularity of Roosevelt, Theodore, in 1904, or Ulysses S. Grant. He's the man. We have time for one final question, and it's about the winner in 1920 because it's a cool question that we only get to answer relatively recently, and that's thanks to DNA science. That's not to say we don't have so much else. That thing you mentioned about Eugene V. Debs, the fact that you have anarchists out there blowing things up and sending packages to people and almost hitting FDR and his wife, that's also in 1920, the year of the six presidents. So many things are going on this year. It's to your credit. You keep it straight and keep it so interesting for your readers. But I wanted to ask about that. Black Americans are voting. You write in 1920 that they were second-class citizens with third-class options. Americans of African descent have a particular reason to back Harding. And of course, they still appreciate Republicans and are loyal since Lincoln. But Jim Crow Democrats have particular reason to oppose him, and that's a rumor about Harding. So share that rumor in its recent debunking. Well, it looked looks to me like it was Ohio Democrats in back of it. There were certainly Democrats in back of it who were circulating hundreds of thousands of leaflets, rather crude, uh, alleging that Warren Harding had what was then called Negro blood. And this word of this reaches Harding. And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> One of my ancestors may have jumped the fence. I don't know. And some of his advisors say, you've, you've got to deal with this rather forcefully. You've got to deny this. A savvy politician says, uh, no, no, because basically you're going to insult the black population if you, you know, get too hot and bothered about this. So they keep quiet about this. But these rumors persist really for decades, 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 until a few years ago. When a Harding descendant, not a direct descendant, contacts the family of a Harding direct descendant because there were rumors about Harding fathering an um, illegitimate daughter. There was a book written about it after his death, which really tarnished his reputation. And the Harding clan gets together with this clan. They compare the DNA. And bang, zoom, yes. That daughter of Harding was the daughter of Harding. But the collateral information gathered from that test is, you know, you find out that this person is, you know, 17% Irish or something, and they find no black American blood with Warren Harding. So those rumors have been completely debunked. But it was sort of touch and go there for the last couple weeks of the 1920 campaign. Looks good how he handles it, too, in the history books, yeah, that he doesn't come out with that how dare you say that about me? That's really 
instinct, I guess, that the guy had. He's an interesting figure. He's the one who ultimately triumphs in 1920. I did like that about him, and I thought that that was fascinating to put that to bed. Well, David Petrucia, so much more here in your book, 1920, The Year of the Six Presidents. Thank you, and special thanks to the FDR Presidential Library and Museum for hosting our conversation. I wish you the best of luck with the book, continued success with the book. Here it is, as you said, in uh, almost a dozen reprintings and printings now. I hope listeners will pick it up as we mark the centennial of this high-powered fight. You may hear some echoes of 1920 in 2020. Thank you. Again, the book is 1920, The Year of the Six Presidents. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy on this episode's page at historyauthor.com. Every time you buy a book through us, you're helping us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. On behalf of David Petruja and myself, thanks to the FDR Library and Museum for hosting our conversation, giving us the chance to share the stories of six men who served in the White House for a combined 10 terms, all chasing the single prize 100 years ago. Visit our guest online at dpetrusia on Twitter or davidpetrusia.com. That last name is spelled P-I-E-T-R-U-S-Z-A. You can also check out fdrlibrary.org or FDR Library on Twitter. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean, on Instagram at The History Author Show, or Facebook.com slash History Author. That's it for this presidential installment of The History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next presidential motorcade into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes.